So please give ear to the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of our Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, which uh, speaks to us. And I pray that you would give us open ears, open minds, and open hearts this morning, that we would hear and perceive as the Spirit moves. May your Spirit speak through your servant and apply your word to our hearts that we might be changed by it. 
And I pray that we would see and understand and appreciate the freedom that we now have in Christ. Amen. So even though freedom is perhaps the primary founding principle of our nation, I believe most Americans don't actually really understand what freedom is. You see, it's, it's, it's hard to explain what freedom is like because I've never been imprisoned. Many, I've never been enslaved or really oppressed in any significant way. Most of us haven't. But there are people in the world today who really and truly do live without freedom. And freedom is just, it's a dream. It's what they dream about. And if they were to ever experience freedom, it would be life-changing and their world would never be the same. Freedom is a need. It is a deep desire that God himself has placed in every human soul. But it's not about getting to do the things that you want to do when and how you want to do them without anyone ever getting in your way. That is not freedom. It is not having all our constraints and all our limitations removed. It is the ability to be what each of us was intended to be. True freedom is found when each of us can live how God made us and intended us to live. That is freedom. And God cares about our freedom. He wants us to be able to live our lives to the fullest and in the way that he intended for us. He cares about freedom for those who are externally enslaved, for those who are persecuted and oppressed, for the imprisoned and the downtrodden. But he also cares about a deeper freedom, an internal freedom, which we can all experience in our hearts and in our souls. And we learned about that last week. We learned that God has set us free from sin. We learned that sin is an enslaving power, a force which overwhelms us and controls us. But we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves of righteousness. In other words, we are free to live in the way that God intended us to live. But this morning, we're going to see how our freedom actually goes even further than that. Not only has God set us free from sin, but he has also set us free from the law. That's the main idea of this chapter here in Romans chapter 7. And so that's going to be our main point here today, that God has set us free from the law. And we're going to see how Paul then develops that thought. So our first point this morning is then that we are set free from the law. Our second point will be that the law is powerless to release us from sin. And then third and finally, we can in Christ live in true freedom. Now Paul makes this first point in the first few verses by illustrating our relationship to the law being like a marriage. Now, I want you to just imagine with me a few moments what it would be like to be in that marriage relationship. The law, who is your spouse, is cold and distant. It is constantly telling you what to do and how to behave and how you should act, how you should feel, how you should think. But it offers you no support. It gives you commands. And expects you to obey them. And then when you make mistakes, it condemns you and reminds you of what your punishment will be. And so your whole life is a constant stream of orders and criticisms and judgment. And it just makes you feel powerless and guilty 
and ashamed. But that's actually not the worst of it. Here's the worst part. In everything that the law tells you, you know full well it is never wrong. As much as you may resist the law, as much as you might resent it or try to escape from it, you know deep in your heart and in your conscience that the law is always 100% right. Paul tells us this in verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. In verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is perfect. And so this is what it is like to be married to the law apart from Christ without his work on our behalf, without his perfect righteousness accounted to us. That was our relationship to the law as we were trying to keep it in our own efforts. The law is holy. The law is good. It is always right, but the law is a terrible spouse. The law was never meant to fulfill that role. That role was meant for another. But now in Jesus Christ, that marriage has ended. It's been annulled because the law has died to us. And we died to the law through our union with Christ and his death on the cross. We are dead To the law, the law is dead to us, we are free. One of my favorite movie characters uh, of all time is is Cameron Fry from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now Cameron is Ferris's best friend, and Ferris is a really happy-go-lucky kind of guy, so it's complete opposite of Cameron. But uh, Ferris ropes him into this scheme to skip school and go out and have the best day they've ever had. And then the first shot we see of Cameron shows him lying in his bed, looking at the ceiling, moaning and thinking about his death. And he lives in a house where everything is beautiful and it's cold and you can't touch anything. And we also know that his dad has a Ferrari that he loves more than life itself and he even loves more than his own son. But for their day out, Ferris convinces Cameron that they have to take the Ferrari So they go out, they have their great day on the town, but then on their way home, Cameron looks down at the odometer and he just realizes then how much trouble he's about to get into. But then a transformation happens. By the time he gets back to his house, he breaks down, he starts telling himself, my old man pushes me around, I never say anything. But he's not the problem. I'm the problem. I've got to take a stand. I've got to take a stand against him. And he starts kicking in the front of the car. And he's shouting, who do you love? You love a car. He stops. He looks down. He sees what he did. And he smiles to himself. And he says, good, my father's going to come home. He'll find what I did. I can't hide this. He'll come home and see what I did. And he'll have to deal with me. He puts his foot on the car one last time and it takes off through the back of the garage and it falls off the side of the hill and crashes in the trees. Ferris looks out the back of the garage. He looks down the hill. He sees the car and he looks back at Cameron and he tells his friend, you killed the car. Now Cameron's relationship with his father is actually very similar to our marriage to the law. There are lots and lots of expectations, but there's very little support and very little grace. And there is absolutely no empowering presence to help us to keep it. 
So in order for that relationship to change, something or someone had to die. And in Cameron's case, it was the car. But in our case, we are the ones who should have died. It should have been us, but Jesus died in our place. And so the law is dead. Because we died with Christ, being united with him in his death and resurrection. And we are free from the law forever. But now we also need to understand further what Paul then goes on to say and to explain why we had to be set free from the law. In other words, drawing from this illustration, how did our marriage to the law get to be so dysfunctional and so unhealthy that it had to be ended by death? What brought a relationship to that point? Was it that the law was evil? No, as we already said. The law is not sin. It is holy. But what happened? Well, the law is good, but it is powerless to deliver us and save us from sin. That's our second point this morning. The law is powerless to deliver us from sin. Look at verses 7 through 13, and I want to just paraphrase this section for you. Essentially, what Paul says is that God's law teaches us right and wrong. It shows us the way to live that will be pleasing to God. And this is a good thing, right? This is good. But then... What happens is sin comes along, which, as we learned last week, sin is an overpowering, enslaving force that controls us. And we can't possibly overcome it. And so sin looks at the law and says, okay, I can get him to break that. And it does. And we do. So when we were under sin, we were powerless to stop it from making us break God's law. But then, actually, sin takes it a step further. Now, because it also sees the law prescribes punishment for sin, the ultimate punishment, of course, being death, now sin says, hey, law, I just got him to break your rules. So now he needs to be punished and you need to sentence him to death. The law, being powerless to break sin, admits, yeah, you're right, sin. I guess I have to punish him now. He has to die. So the law then becomes sin's jailer and executioner. It imprisons and tortures us and condemns us to death. Think of it this way. Maybe this image will help you. In all these old black and white monster movies, there's a a mad scientist who makes this evil monster. But every mad scientist needs an Igor, an assistant, this lackey who walks around, shuffles around, says, Yes, master, and then throws the switch, you know, does the master's bidding. So what Paul is telling us is that the law is essentially sin's Igor. It was, it's good, it's intended for our good, but it is flawed. It's not strong enough to overcome sin on its own, and so sin takes the law and makes it serve as its Igor. So the law may have come to us ready to show us the way, and we might have been excited for a time because we thought we were following it. We thought we were keeping the commandments. We thought we were doing great. But then after a time, we eventually, inevitably, find out that the law cannot deliver us from the persistent sins that we struggle with. 
doesn't have the power to do that. And so instead, the law becomes sin's henchmen, lashing us with judgment and with condemnation. And we are powerless to stop it. But now, Jesus has come to intervene. Jesus comes on the scene. And in one of the most beautiful, wonderful encounters that we see in the gospel that illustrates this perfectly is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And Jesus starts talking to her. He asks her for some water. And she's taken aback that he, a Jewish man and a rabbi, would even speak to her, a Samaritan woman. And they have a brief exchange about history and theology. And then Jesus tells her to go get her husband. And she says... I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she tries to deflect from there, and she talks about places of worship, and Jesus responds, but then she just ends up copping out, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And in response, this woman gets up. She leaves her water jar. She went away into town and she tells, said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, if anyone has ever understood what it meant to live under the dominion of the law and held captive to its judgment and its condemnation, it was this Samaritan woman. And she would have been marked and publicly humiliated as an outcast and a pariah, daily reminded of her guilt and of her shame. But then she meets Jesus. And Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. He, in fact, confronts it. But he doesn't condemn her. He rescues her. That's, after all, what Christ means. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, the anointed one was someone that God appointed to either herald and proclaim some great salvation or to actually be the one who was bringing about a great rescue, a great deliverance. And that's Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Savior, and he saves this woman and he saves us from the power of sin that had controlled her all of her life. He saves her from the power of the law that had burdened her and beaten her down. And this woman goes away rejoicing and telling everyone who will listen, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this? Is this the Savior? And he is. And perhaps you have been overwhelmed by the power of sin in your life. Perhaps you also have been judged and condemned and abused by the law, feeling like you will never live up to its expectations of you. Christ has come to set you free. He is the Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. He has died on the cross and he rose from the dead for you and for me so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin, so that we will no longer be under the crushing burden of the law. 
We are free if we are in Christ. So we've seen then that Christ has set us free from the law, and we've seen why we had to be set free from the law. But now we need to see that the way in which Paul tells us that we can actually live in that freedom. We can live in that freedom in Christ. And I want, we're going to take our time and dig a little bit deeper into the passage on this point, because on the one hand, this part of the chapter is the part that gets pretty complex. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's really important for us to understand what God's word is telling us here. Now, in verses 14 through 25, Paul gets into this extended, tortured, internal monologue about fighting sin that is still in his life. And this is actually one of the most controversial, debated portions of the book of Romans. Because here's the thing. In all honesty, we don't actually know for sure, for absolute certainty, who Paul is talking about. This is a very debated question, a lot of different stances on it. So is he talking about himself in the present, or is he talking about himself in his previous life as a Pharisee? Or could he perhaps be speaking rhetorically about another person? And if he is, is that person a believer or an unbeliever? And there's so many great teachers and pastors who have all disagreed on these questions, and that's fine. This is a difficult passage. It's very challenging. And as I came to this passage to prepare the sermon, I was uncertain about this, about where I stood. And I'm still not 100% sure that I have this figured out. And I want you to know, if you feel that way, that's fine. And if you disagree with what I'm going to share with you in a few minutes, that's okay. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But what I want to do is share with you some important principles I've learned in studying this to help us to understand what Paul is saying in these verses. So the first thing we need to do is we have to keep in mind what we just learned from the first verses of this chapter, which is that we are free from the law and that the law on its own is powerless to overcome sin and to make us holy. Let's look again at verse Verses uh, 4 and verses 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I want to pause right there. If we belong, if we've died to one thing and we belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, how can Paul say you are sold under sin? You are of the, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that then seems to contradict what Paul says in verse 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But he just said that we can now serve in the way of the Spirit. Another thing that we have to keep in mind... We also have to remember what we learned in chapter 6 about how we died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ and we are freed from the power and slavery to sin. I'm just going to go through chapter 6 and read a few verses to illustrate this for you. Verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 7, one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verses 12 and then 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, for sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Finally, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6, you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now, since all of this is true, all of these things are true of us, how then can Paul say in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin? To be sold under sin means still enslaved to it. How can he say four times in verses 15 and 16 and then 19 and 20 that he does not do the good that he wants to do? And then how can he say in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members? Which is it? Are we free from the sin and the law or... Is the law of sin still dwelling in us and making us captive? Finally, we look at verse 24. He calls himself a wretched man, and he calls out for for deliverance from this body of death. Now, why is he calling out for deliverance if Christ has already set us free? We are already redeemed and adopted and brought into God's family. So there is an inconsistency here that we should be able to be picking up on. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to be making us a little bit confused and wondering what's going on. How does this make sense? Like I said, I don't have this 100% figured out. And if you disagree with the conclusion that I've come to, I'd love to talk with you about that at some point. But how can we make sense of this? I think it should be clear from the passages that we've looked at in chapter 6 and also in the beginning of chapter 7, and we could also look ahead at chapter 8, that Paul cannot be speaking about himself or about any Christian because ultimately these statements in this latter section of chapter 7 just cannot be true of someone who has believed in Jesus and been delivered by him from sin and from the law. If you are a Christian, and if you are struggling with persistent sin, which, that means all of us, we all struggle with persistent sin, you need to know, you have to be absolutely certain, sin does not control you. It is not your master in any way, shape, or form. Your deliverance in Christ from sin is real. It is complete. Sin has no dominion over you, and the law no longer condemns you. You have died, and you have been raised with Christ. And you are free, and you have received His Spirit, so you have the power to fight sin that is in your life. There are vast spiritual resources which are yours right now in Christ for you to use in your walk of faith and your struggle against sin. So if it isn't believers that Paul is talking about here, who is it? Well, 
given that the first part of this chapter is about being delivered from the law, and Paul goes into length to show that the law is unable to save us from sin and make us holy, it seems then that he is speaking about those who are trying to live by the law apart from their deliverance in Christ and apart from the empowering presence of the Spirit in their lives. That's who he's talking about. But the reason why so many people believe that Paul is actually talking about himself or talking about believers in this section, and, you know, full disclosure, I actually did believe that for some time myself. And the reason we believe that is that we can all relate to what he's saying here. This is so relatable. We've all felt that way. We've all been there. Even though these things are not true of us at all, we feel like they are when we are fighting with sin that is in our lives. But what Paul is doing here is he is helping us to realize that when we feel like this, we are not thinking about ourselves accurately. We are not thinking of ourselves as Christians who are free, who are in Christ. We are still thinking of ourselves as slaves under the control and dominion of sin and the law. We are still thinking of ourselves as if we were still unbelievers. So that doesn't mean that we are unbelievers. It means that we are thinking of ourselves as if we were. Now, there's an old TV show called The Beverly Hillbillies, and it's about a poor family that they lived in a shack in the mountains until one day uh, the father, Jeb, finds oil on their land, and they become rich. They become millionaires, and they leave their shack. They buy a mansion in Beverly Hills, and they move there. But the funny thing is, nothing else about them changes. They keep on living the same lifestyle. They wear the same clothes. They eat the same kind of food. They drive the same old beat-up junkie car. They still talk in the same way. And they keep all their old habits. So although they physically, externally moved in their minds, they're still back in their shack in the mountains. They're millionaires, but in their minds, they're still poor. They have not fully appropriated the wealth and the resources and the reality that is theirs. They are living in a made-up dream world where they are still poor and still in a shack. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British pastor, says. The slave attitude generally arises from the tendency to turn the Christian life into a new law, into a higher law. I am thinking about people who are quite clear about their relationship to the law as a way of salvation. They have seen quite clearly that Christ has delivered them from that and that he alone could do so. They know that their own efforts will never enable them to fulfill the law. However, they now begin to look positively at the Christian life and in a very subtle way, quite unconsciously to themselves, they turn it into a new kind of law, with the result that they get into a spirit of bondage and serfdom. That's what Paul is describing here in chapter 7, the spirit of bondage and serfdom. Now, do you feel this morning like your faith has become a new bondage, a new slavery? Are you not experiencing the joy that you, of knowing that you are free in Christ? 
And do you feel like sin is still controlling you, enslaving you, enslaving your body so that you cannot do the good things that you know you ought to do, that you want to do, and it's still forcing you to do evil? That is not who you are. That is not reality. You have been set free in Christ. No part of you in any way, shape, or form is enslaved to sin or to the law. You are free completely and totally in Christ right now. Because you've died with him. You've been raised with him. And you can live in that freedom. So how do we do that? How do we escape the spirit of bondage and of serfdom? How do we live in the freedom that he's given us? We're going to sing in a few minutes a wonderful hymn, one of my favorites, called Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. And one of the verses, which I think is just, it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful verses in any hymn that I know. The author says this, Think. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Why are you sad? How can you be so sad? How can you be in the spirit of bondage and fear? We are set free by believing that Jesus' righteousness is credited to us on our behalf. We've been adopted into the family of God. We can know without any shadow of a doubt that we died with Christ to sin. We died with him to the law. And now we can live for God. And it is only by appropriating all these gifts which are already ours in Christ. We do not need to earn them. We cannot secure them for ourselves, but they are already ours in Christ. We need only rest in them, trust in them, abide in these things, knowing that they are true of us in spite of what our feelings and our circumstances might be telling us. That is how we escape the spirit of bondage and serfdom and slavery to sin. That is how we can be free. God cares about our freedom. And he wants us to live as he created us and as he has called us to live. And yes, that means we struggle with sin, but our job in struggling with sin is not to be the one who kills sin. We can't do that. Christ did that. Our job is seeing that sin has already died. Jesus has paid the price for our freedom. He died on the cross for you and for me. And we are free. So don't. Don't even think about falling back into thinking that you are still enslaved to sin or to the law in any way, in any part, in any shape or form. We are free. We can trust in Christ and what his work has done for us. We can appropriate the gifts he's given to us. And we can live in freedom. Let's pray.